We're in John 3 this week. John chapter 3, if you have a Bible, open up with me there. As you are turning there, the title of the sermon, if you're taking notes, is The Good News That Makes People New. And let me recap where we have been so far in John chapter 1 and 2. We looked at the testimony of John the Baptist early on. His testimonial about Jesus was this, this is the Lamb of God who has come, come to take away the sin of the world. We also saw the conversion or the testimonies of five disciples of Jesus and how they came to faith in Him. And most recently, we read about the first two signs of Jesus, the water turned to wine, and then last week, the cleansing of the temple, which it's on the heels of that story, that event, that we come to our story in John chapter 3 about this man, Nicodemus. We're going to read up to verse 15 now, but we will go to verse 21 eventually. Let's read verse 1 to 15. <clears throat> now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these, thing, these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. I want to start with a story by way of illustration. It's an old story that I came across this last week in my study. It's a story about two royal gentlemen who occupied the court of the king. And these two gentlemen argued with one another as to whether a person, a man, had to be born a gentleman or whether he could become a gentleman through strict training and discipline. The king grew weary of their arguing. 
and ordered them to go out into the world and find proof for their claims and report back in one year. A year passed. The gentleman who said that one could become a gentleman traveled to a distant land but still did not find his proof until one day his fortunes changed. After ordering a cup of chocolate to his amazement, it was brought to him by the shop owner's cat. Evidently, this cat had been trained to stand on its hind legs and balance a tray in its forepaws while dressed in a tiny uniform and serve the customers. The gentleman watched with amazement as the cat, contrary to its nature, served him his cup of chocolate. At once he thought, if a cat could be trained to do that, why couldn't a man, through strict training and discipline, become a gentleman? He was convinced this cat was proof for his point, and he paid a vast sum of money for this little cat and headed for home. News of that cat leaked out, and the gentleman's rival was plunged in despair. He too had traveled far, but was returning home empty-handed. He was sure he had lost. But then, just before the scheduled appearance before the king, he saw something in a shop window that he was sure would prove his point. He made his purchase, but kept it a secret. On the day of the trial, the first gentleman presented the cat to the king as proof that a person could be so trained that he could overcome all natural handicaps and become that most accomplished of civilized persons, a royal gentleman. As the king sat on his throne, the remarkable cat, attired in miniature royal attire, walked carefully on its hind legs and made its way slowly down a red carpet, carrying a tray of chocolate to the king. And the court broke out into applause. Everyone looked with admiration at the cat and with pity at the other gentleman, the one who said one must be born a gentleman, but the man was ready. After bowing to the king, he placed a small box on the ground and opened it. And out of it, ran a dozen white mice, and instantly the cat forgot its training and discipline, its natural instincts surfaced, and in a flash off it went after the scampering mice. The cat returned hours later, purring with its royal attire completely disheveled. The point I want to persuade you of this morning from John 3 is this. Cats are stupid. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. In all seriousness, the point I want to make to you from John 3 is this. Jesus was crucified not to make men nice, but to make them new. Jesus was crucified not to make men or people nice, but to make them new. In John 3, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus, a gentleman 
by virtue of nearly all metrics in his day. That's what we gather in verses 1 and 2, where we read he was a Pharisee, and oftentimes we think of Pharisees in a negative connotation. That's not how it's applied here. This was someone who was religiously devoted to the Jewish law. He was a moral person. He was a ruler of the Jews, it says there. He possessed wealth. He had influence. In verse 10, Jesus even acknowledges him as the teacher in Israel. If someone had a Bible question or a theological question, he was your guy. And yet we see there in verse 2 that Nicodemus, this religious, this royal gentleman, came to Jesus at night for a chat. And the first thing he says to him is this, rabbi, meaning teacher, We know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, based on the previous story, the cleansing of the temple, it appears that what Jesus did on that day had an impression on this man, this Pharisee, this leader, this ruler of the Jews. Perhaps he was curious about this Jesus, perhaps He was convicted by Jesus, and so he comes to him, and he makes this remarkable admission. And let's not make the mistake of downplaying what Nicodemus says to Jesus. This man of wealth and influence and position comes to a man from Nazareth untrained by any of the Jewish Bible schools, unaffiliated with the temple or any synagogue, and yet Nicodemus comes to him representing a few of his constituents. He says, hey, we know these things about you. And he tells him, we know you're a teacher sent from God and that God is with you. Essentially, what he's saying is, we know you're from Nazareth, but man, you are a gentleman. It's amazing what he actually says to him. It probably was unprecedented for a guy of his stature, his social status, and all of the things he had to come to a guy like Jesus and welcome him in to be a part of their religious elite. This is a flattery beyond words, and yet his flattery was not received by Jesus. You know, it made me think there's people today who are what what maybe you would call admirers of Jesus. They like his teachings, they like his character, they like the way he treated people. Nicodemus was kind of like that. He was ready to acknowledge him as a teacher, as an equal even within a very small group of elite gentlemen. But he was not ready to acknowledge him as anyone or anything greater than that as Messiah, as Savior, and Lord. To be honest, though, what he says to Jesus isn't as important as what Jesus says back to him, is it? And to help us sort of navigate through these verses and see the overall point, I've broken the text up into four sections. And the first I'm calling is this, the need for Conversion. I'll explain that word as we go. Look again at Jesus' strange answer in verse 3 to what he just said to him. Truly, truly, no, seriously, Nicodemus, 
I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's two phrases I want to focus on in that statement, the kingdom of God and born again. It's actually rare as you read on in John's gospel for him to use the phrase, the kingdom of God. If you want to hear more of that, you got to go over to Matthew. John doesn't really use it all that much, so when he uses it, we should pay attention. And he mentions it here for a very important purpose, because this royal gentleman, much like those gentlemen in our earlier story, he thought he was already in the kingdom. After all, by most human standards, he had all those boxes checked, right? He was a good person. He was religious, paid his tithes to the temple, gave to the needy, served even in the temple, probably was active in political issues, was educated in the scriptures, was intelligent, a member of the social and academic elites. If anyone was good enough to get into the kingdom of God, it would have been this guy, Nicodemus. He was really a good guy. But when Jesus responded in this way, it was like letting a box of mice out in front of a cat. And instantly, it revealed something about this man, that he had a great need. He needed to be made new, not just nicer. In other words, it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how much money you make, how much good you do for other people. It doesn't matter if you don't do worse things than someone else or if someone is worse than you. It doesn't matter what rung on the social ladder you climb up to, none of that's going to get you into the kingdom of God, which is a great concern here of this passage. You must be born again. You need to be made new. You need to be converted. And when I say that word converted, I don't simply mean a change of mind or association. People use that word when they say, oh, yeah, I converted from being like a Democrat to a Republican or a Republican to a Democrat or an independent or whatever it is, or, or maybe going from a Buddhist to a Hindu or, or that sort of thing. This isn't that kind of conversion. This kind of conversion, it's not like dressing up a cat to look like a human being, but it's still a cat. This kind of conversion is a complete transformation, a change of human nature, our sinful nature to something else. This man, Nicodemus, he may have been born a gentleman. He may have even become a gentleman over the years through strict discipline and religious habit. But at the end of the day, Nicodemus, just like every other human being born into the world, is a sinner by nature. He was just more dressed up than most people, like that cat in our story. No matter how religious or moral or socially established he was, none of those things in and of themselves has the power to change a person's nature. And I think that Nicodemus was confronted by that fact when Jesus came in and cleansed the temple. And it seems that it was a shocking wake-up call to Nicodemus, and he didn't know what to do. And so he came to Jesus, sensing something's off. I feel like I'm in the kingdom of God, but I'm missing something. And maybe he was going to Jesus looking for assurance. 
or anything to soothe his guilty conscience from Jesus. But what Jesus tells him is this, Nicodemus, you do have a great problem, and, and, and you're not in. You need to be made new. You need to be converted. You need to be, in his words, born again, which goes back to what we read in the prologue in John 1. But to all who did receive him, he believed in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You need to be made new. You need to be born again. This clearly confused Nicodemus. And so we'll look at what Jesus says to him again in the next section. This section I'm calling the picture of conversion. In verse 4 through 8, to help Nicodemus understand what he means, because he asks the question again, how does that make sense, Jesus? And he gives him three pictures of what conversion looks like, what being born again means, the water, the flesh, and the wind. First, he tells him, well, it looks like this. You need to be born of water and the Spirit, which some have been confused by that. But the context in this section seems to, by the surrounding sections at least, can help, I think, give meaning to what he's talking about. For example, right before John the Baptist gave the conclusion to his testimonial that this is the Lamb of God, he says this in verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And there seems to be a connection here between what Jesus is saying about water and Spirit and what John was saying about water and Spirit. And the picture of the water of John's baptism was a picture of repentance. What Jesus is not saying is that you need to be baptized in water to be saved and then receive the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the baptism of John was a picture of a very important facet of conversion. It's repentance. It's, I'm I'm clearly not in a right relationship with God, and I'm going to acknowledge that, and I'm going to repent or turn from those things, and I'm going to devote myself to God. That's what John was doing. And so what Jesus is saying is that to be born again on a human level, it starts with repentance, an acknowledgement of I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And I'm going to turn from those things, and I'm going to turn to God. From there, he gives the picture of the flesh, which is easy enough to understand, I think. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, listen, the flesh is flesh, and the spirit is spirit. A cat is always a stupid cat. No matter how much you dress it up, it's always going to be a cat. And a human is always going to be a fallen sinner. And there's nothing that you can do to change the nature of what they are. That's why Jesus is saying you need a new nature. If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born of spirit. And thirdly, he gives the picture of the wind. I think the illustration is clear. Just like the wind, you can't control God's spirit or see where he is going or coming from. All you can do is feel his leading and respond to it. When we look at a flag blowing in the wind, none of us thinks, well, look at that flag moving itself all on its own. Nobody thinks that. We all think, oh, look at the wind. It's blowing from this direction and that direction. And how do we know that? By its effect on the flag. And what Jesus is saying is this, Nicodemus, you're not here talking to me right now because you blew here all on your own. Someone led you here. Do you feel it? 
Have you sensed that? Here's my question to you, Nicodemus. Are you going to respond to it? Or are you going to fight against the wind? Are you going to fight against the Spirit's leading? And it appears as if Jesus, through all these pictures, is helping Nicodemus to see that it's through repentance, it's through a spiritual rebirth, and by responding to the Spirit's conviction that a person enters the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is still confused. In verse 9, how can these things be? And it doesn't seem to be that he's arguing with Jesus. It seems like he's actually wondering, tell me how I can do this. How does that happen? How do I experience the new birth? Which takes me to the third section in verses 9 to 15. I'm calling the method of conversion. In verse 11, Jesus responds to Nicodemus' second question by saying this, truly, truly, no, seriously, Nicodemus, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. This is a fascinating response from Jesus because essentially, here's the picture, a line is drawn in the sand. On the one side of the line is Nicodemus and his constituents, those who in verse 2, he said, we know you're a teacher sent from God. On the other side of the line is Jesus and John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus and the disciples who had come to believe in him on this side of the line saying, we know who Jesus really is. He's God. And Nicodemus on, uh, in the beginning is, is almost inviting Jesus to come onto his side of the line. Hey, Jesus, we, us, look at how amazing we are. We're inviting you to come be a gentleman with us one of the religious elites, because we've recognized something special about you. And Jesus is like, hey, Nicodemus, why don't you come over here to my side of the line? Receive what we know about me, which is essentially what conversion is. Conversion is moving from a position of unbelief or disbelief in Jesus or or just wrong belief to a place of belief. And, And please understand, there's no way you can straddle that line. You can't be on the one side and on the other at the same time. You either trust in what you think you know about Jesus or you trust in what those who follow Jesus know about Jesus. Conversion is forsaking all that you have and all that you think you know, and turning to Jesus, recognizing that He has everything that you need and will help you relearn everything that you need to know. Jesus doesn't stop there, though, in helping this man understand that he needs to be made new. In verse 15, he takes Nicodemus to a famous story in Israel's history about the serpent. The story is recorded in Numbers 21. You can read it later on in the afternoon if you want. But what he does by taking him to Numbers 21 is he wants to show Nicodemus this is what faith looks like. And also to reveal what's going to happen to him in the future. In Numbers 21, the Israelites, as they were doing constantly, rebelled against God by challenging the leadership of Moses. And God responds by sending poisonous snakes into their camp 
and thousands die when they are bitten as a judgment for what they were doing. And what do they do? They cry out to Moses to cry out to God, to save them, to help them. And God tells Moses, okay, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. What? Not like some medicine? There's not like some practice where someone's going to like suck the blood out of a person or something? Like, what do you mean? Look at a serpent, an image on a pole, and when I look at it, all of a sudden I'm going to be healed? What a wild thing to suggest to somebody who is literally dying of a poisonous bite. And you wonder, how is that going to work? And the simple answer is this, because God said it would. That's the simple answer, because God said it would. And that's what faith is. It's believing the word of God, even when on a human level, it does not make sense. And Nicodemus knew that story, was familiar with the story, knew that it probably would have been difficult to believe in what God's word said in that moment with the fiery serpent, and yet those who did lived. And so now he's got this story of saying, hey, I guess that's how God works. It's by believing in the word of God that you are saved. That's how you're made new. And what Jesus is saying is, is this, Nicodemus, the same way it happened back then is the same way it still happens today. It's through faith and what God says. And what Jesus does is he takes that story in Numbers 21 and he uses it to look forward to a day not too far in the future of his own death, to a day when he like that servant in Numbers 21, would be lifted up and crucified on a Roman cross in the hope and with the hope that all who are bitten by sin and are under certain judgment and death will look upon him by faith and be saved. Do you believe it? Because that's what he's asking Nicodemus to believe. Do you believe that just by looking to Christ and saying, that is my salvation, that that is is how I am saved. This is the method of conversion, faith in the crucified Christ. Faith is the active response to what God has said in His Word. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that the message of the cross to some is foolishness. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. I'd rather trust in my medicine. I'd rather trust in my psychiatrist. I'd rather trust in my own intuitiveness or ingenuity or whatever it is. But Paul goes on to say, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that leaves us, I guess, with our final section, the climax of the scene with Nicodemus in a section I'm calling the call to conversion. Why don't we read together verse 16 to 21? It's the summary, I guess, of everything he had said so far. He says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. 
And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's not coincidence at all that Jesus here at the end of this section speaks so heavily about light and darkness and those who don't want to come to the light and remain in their darkness, but those who come into the light are sort of approved by God and known by God. It's not coincidence because remember, Nicodemus is coming to this guy at night in the dark. And Jesus is exposing here at the end to Nicodemus, hey, Nicodemus, you're in spiritual darkness and uh, you need to come into the light. But I'm curious and concerned, Nicodemus, that you don't want to because you're afraid that your works are going to be exposed. So he's challenging him. What are you going to do? I seriously think that Jesus is trying so hard to help this man see that he needs to be made new. And so do all of us. So do all of us. Unfortunately, most people, including most Christians, they only stop at verse 16. They only remember that. Maybe if they're Strong Christians, they get to verse 17, <laughs> and they hold on to these verses, but they forget the context. And I mean, rightfully so, verse 16 and verse 17 are amazing. The fact that God demonstrated His love for sinful people by sending His one and only Son, His most valued relationship in all of eternity to be crucified in my place, that is wild. There is, that is a love beyond our comprehension. But as I thought about this in its context... We can marvel at God's love and giving of His Son, but we should also marvel in this passage in the fact that God's love extends so far that He's willing to make people like you and me new again. New people. Not only was He willing to send His Son, not only was Jesus willing to come and die, but Jesus... And the Father and the Holy Spirit and their love for you is to such a degree that they're willing to make you new again. Look at the metaphors in the passage, just over and over again. He died so that we would not perish, but have life. He died so that we would not be condemned, but be saved. He died so that we would no longer live in darkness, but instead live in the light. He died so that our evil works would be exposed so that we could begin to walk in the truth. These are images, metaphors of conversion. This is why God sent His Son into the world. To move us from death to life, from darkness to light, from judgment to salvation, from evil and wickedness to the truth. I again, it's not about becoming nice, but recognizing that I'll never be nice enough and I need to be made new. And that you can only be made new by the love of God and the grace of God. Going back to that earlier story with the cat, I love that so much. But these gentlemen, they wondered if a man had to be born a gentleman or if he could become one through discipline and training. And what we've discovered today is that it is neither birth nor discipline nor religious habit or any of these things that someone enters into the kingdom of God. It isn't through religion or association or morality or anything that we can do. It's all by the love of God 
and through faith in Christ crucified. It's by believing in the testimony that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And friends, as I thought about that, that's good news for all of us here in the room. And I'll tell you why. Since conversion is by faith alone in Christ alone, anyone can be saved. From the nicest person in the world to the most horrific. The gospel is not for a certain group of people. The gospel is for all people. And yet you must believe. You need to believe. We know that not everyone will believe. We're told why. Because they love their darkness rather than the the light. And they rest under their own condemnation. Nevertheless, here is the call of the gospel. The call to convert Will you believe in Jesus? Will you come out of darkness and into the light? Will you repent of your sin and unbelief and commit yourself to Jesus? Will you step over that metaphorical line that's drawn in the sand and belong to the company of Jesus? If you will, and if you already have, you can be assured of this entrance into the kingdom of God. Isn't that what we all want at the end of the day? At the end of the day, we want heaven. We want to be with our Creator and our Savior. If you will believe, if you have believed, you can be assured of this. Nothing can take it away. Entrance into the kingdom of God. If you haven't yet, do it today. Do it now, honestly. Why don't we pray? We'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you and we're in awe of your love for us that is displayed in Christ on the cross. But this morning, we are in awe that you, the God who made all things from nothing, also has the power and the love to fix broken people like us, to make us new. And thank you that, God, you do not love us based on anything that we bring to the table, but you love us because of what Christ has brought to the table on our behalf. And thank you that you have the desire to convert and make new all kinds of people from all over the earth. But not just how broad your love is, but how personal it is, that you would love people like us, that you would love me, that you would be willing to make me new and us new. God, help us to walk in that newness of life. Help us to rest in the assurance that we have in the cross. Help us to tell others, to plead with others, to be converted, by, to believe in Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.